Here's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You might say they were a couple who were just dying to get into the Bible. You've heard of healthy families? Well, this was a lethal, toxic, phony family. The story begins in verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Now, if I have them pegged right, Ananias and Sapphira were the all-American couple living in Jerusalem. In high school, Ananias had been the captain of the football team. Sapphira had been the homecoming queen. They both had probably been voted most likely to succeed. The couple got married straight out of college. Beforehand, they had been the darlings of the youth group. Now they're driving a Mercedes to church, dressing up in hip clothes. They got a house in the Burbs. They host a home fellowship. My, Ananias is even a candidate for deacon. This storybook couple was the epitome of respectability. They were the poster children for conservative, evangelical success. They even dabbled in real estate. Yet here's what happened. Over the last several weeks, their friends at church had developed a new seriousness about following Jesus, even to the point of it lightening their wallet. Fellow believers, many of their friends, were selling off possessions, pooling their resources. This was hardcore commitment. And the country club couple felt threatened. Ananias and Sapphira were thinking, wait, what happened to moderation? Ananias and Sapphira liked playing religion. They liked appearing religious. But all of a sudden, they're now surrounded by real giving and genuine faith and costly commitment. This was different. It felt uncomfortable. This was an encroachment on their lifestyle. See, here was their quandary. In their hearts, Ananias and Sapphira were ready for, weren't ready for such a costly step of commitment. Well, they had faith. They were believers, but their faith was growing. It was still a baby faith. Their faith needed more muscle, needed more daring. But they didn't want to look bad, and they certainly didn't want to be left out. And to this star-studded couple, image was everything. Ananias couldn't tolerate being labeled unspiritual. So here's what he did. Read with me verse 2. They sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now realize God never required the selling of this parcel. And once it was sold, the Lord never commanded that the proceeds be given to the church. What was being done by church members was strictly voluntary. Neither did God tell Ananias to give all the proceeds from the sale. He could have just delivered a portion, but said so. Just been honest. It didn't have to be all the money. Ananias could have tithed, just given 10%, said his faith was under construction, and in the future he hoped to give more. Candor would have saved his life. Ananias' sin was to give part, yet claim to give all. He lied. And don't ever think you can lie with impunity, especially a father 
Hey, a mark of a man is honesty and integrity. Kids want to see their dead. They want to see that we're guided by principle, not just convenience. Do we do what's right or just what's easy? Hypocrisy always gets outed. This is why it's been said there's no such thing as an inconsequential lie. Honesty is not only important to our kids, but to God. The Holy Spirit is often called the hound of heaven. He sniffs out hypocrisy a mile away. Well, Ananias lied, and he gets busted in verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? He had covered up. It was a charade. Ananias claimed what he never intended. His gift was designed to impress people rather than please God. Apparently, God could have tolerated Ananias' stinginess. Hey, his faith was growing. He would have matured out of his materialistic mentality. But what God couldn't allow was for hypocrisy to gain a foothold in the early church. You see, here were two folks more concerned about looking good than being real. It was style over substance. And in my opinion, this is the blight of the modern church today. Here's one of our major problems. Churches today are full of phony families. And much of the blame lies at the feet of dads. Remember, fellas, we are the leaders in our family. Here's what happens on any given Sunday morning in millions of homes all across America. A duty-bound wife gets up and badgers her reluctant husband to go to church. They both have to light a fire under the begrudging kids. A fight breaks out at the breakfast table. Dad yells at Junior. Mom yells at Dad for yelling at Junior. On the drive to church, Mom and Dad get into an argument over whether they can afford to give an offering that morning. That's when Junior hits Sissy in the back seat. Mom leans over and swats JR. Dad scolds Mom, I'll handle Junior later. And on and on it goes. Until the car door opens in the church parking lot. And the transformation begins. Mom checks her makeup. Dad tucks in his shirt tail. The kids start spying out their friends. And by the time they get to the usher at the front door, they have plastered a smile all across their faces. Ten minutes later, their eyes are closed, their hands are raised, they're swaying to the music as they worship God and shout out his praise and sing of his love. And as they leave that morning, everyone thinks, my, what a lovely Christian family. If only you'd seen them a few hours earlier, you would have thunk, what a phony family. And let me be the first to confess, this has been me. I've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. There have been Saturday nights when I have argued with my wife. I'm talking knock down, drag out, horrible fights where I was mean and ugly and angry. Then had the nerve to come to church the next morning, stand in this pulpit and teach you how to have a good marriage. I've done it. I've been there. Now it's been a while since it happened. Several years ago, in fact, Thankfully, it doesn't occur much these days. For one, my wife and I have matured spiritually. And two, 
we decided several years ago to just keep a healthy distance from each other on Saturday nights. We actually drive to church in separate cars on Sunday morning, just in case. We don't want to be a phony family. Recently, I read of a new product. It's called Spray-On Mud. It's a big hit in England where there is little real mud. You see, when an image-conscious dude buys a nice new 4x4 SUV, he wants people to use, people to think that he's using his high-performance vehicle for more than just hauling kids to soccer practice and bringing home the groceries to his wife. So he can pop the top on that can of spray-on mud, and he can make his new SUV look like it's been off-road for three days, climbing hills and plowing through the wilderness. Well, hey, this is what Ananias did. He popped the top on some spray-on piety, some pretend faith. He covered his family in what looked like significant sacrifice. See, every believer gets tempted to inflate our claims and embellish our testimony. We like seeming more spiritual than we are. We talk a degree of devotion we've never known. We vow to give all, then hold some back. We tend to forget that God hates fake. Ananias had an image to uphold. The truth about his weakness might cause the church to think less of him. What he should have cared about was God's opinion. In fact, that's what every father should care about. Well, in verse 4, Peter grills Ananias. While it remained, was it not your own? Ananias, it was your property. Your name was on the deed, not God's. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? The Lord never laid claim to the parcel. He never required it as an offering. This was all a scheme to pass off phoniness as true devotion. Peter asks, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Phoniness in a family is a terrible sin for a number of reasons. For one, hypocrisy turns off our kids to Christianity. It dilutes the commitment level across the church. It diminishes the true sacrifice of others. Hypocrisy breeds distrust among believers. And it gives this lost world a reason to doubt the sincerity of our faith and to once again mock our witness. But you know, worst of all, We offend God, the Holy Spirit, when we lie and pretend. Peter tells Ananias, you have not lied to men, but to God. God took Ananias' phoniness very, very seriously. Verse 5 reads, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. God struck Ananias, seized up his heart perhaps, He took a final gulp of air and died. And even the staunchest skeptic of the Bible believes the next verse. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. I am sure it did. It scared the church spitless. God's family for a while became a frightened family. Actually, these disciples should have expected as much. While on earth, the one sin sin that Jesus detested more than any other was hypocrisy. 
You remember, he offered forgiveness and showed compassion to the tax collectors and the prostitutes, but our Lord hurled fiery daggers at the hypocrites. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus contrasted true worship and prayer and fasting with phony worship and prayer and fasting. And the difference was very simple. The phony variety wants to be seen by men, while true worship desires only to glorify God. It's motive that matters. See, Ananias did a spiritual act for a selfish reason. His motive was wrong. It wasn't pure. He tried to appear spiritual in the eyes of his peers, while in the eyes of God, he was something else. And this is the most insidious evil, worse than simply ignoring God. It's using God for your own enlargement. How dare you? In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus squared off with the kings of phoniness, the Pharisees, and he launched a tirade. Jesus goes off on them. He calls them every name in the book. Blind guides, fools, sons of hell, whitewashed tombs, serpents, brood of vipers. Then and now, Jesus has a low tolerance for hypocrisy. Understand, in Acts chapter 5, God didn't want to strike down Ananias. Was it something he relished? The man's struggling devotion, his immature faith, the leftovers of his materialism, even the limits of his generosity. These weren't the deal breakers for God. God could have worked with Ananias. Certainly, Jesus wants us to grow spiritually. He wants us to exercise our faith until it becomes rock solid. But we can always improve. I've heard it said, the biggest room in the world is the room for improvement. And we all have room to grow in Christ. God isn't surprised when his children at times act childish. Psalm 103 verse 14 reminds us, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. No, God threw the switch on Ananias, not because of his immaturity, but because of his hypocrisy. Here's a quote that should make us think. We know perfectly well how to be spiritual. It's being human that we have trouble with. Think about it. See, Ananias knew how to do spiritual. He could put on an act. He was more at ease with appearing spiritual than admitting his humanity. Why is it hard for us to swallow our pride and confess our sins and admit our failures, and talk openly about our weaknesses. It's hard to be human, isn't it? Why is it everyone feels it more at home on top of the soapbox? It's when I confess my frailties and my flaws, that's when I have to climb down. Now we're all on equal footing. This is why a proud father never gets honest with his kids. This is why teenagers hide stuff from their parents. This is why husbands and wives refuse to really talk about the real issues that are troubling them. Instead of honesty and humility, haughtiness causes families to become phony. Everybody jockeys to gain the upper hand. We want to one-up the other person. We all like feeling superior and holding the high ground, but before the cross, people, it's all just level ground. Sometimes families would rather deny their pain and their shortcomings instead of being honest in dealing with them. They avoid the truth and they live a lie. 
They pretend not to hurt even when they do. I've heard it said, more people would learn from their mistakes if they weren't so busy denying them. Always remember, denial is not just a river in Egypt. In fact, denial isn't a river at all. It's a blocker. It dams up the flow. What families need today is a river of tears. When was the last time you cried with your family? You opened up to your spouse. You became emotionally vulnerable to your kids. When was the last time you shared your heart with a parent or you forgave your sibling? Have you ever apologized to a child? It's honesty that allows the pain and the disappointment and the hurt and the heartache to flow out, to get flushed out. This is what marriages and families need most today. They need to be honest and to really begin to care again. I've heard it said, tears are a river that takes you somewhere. Tears lift your boat off the rocks, off dry ground, carrying it downriver to someplace better. And you see, if tears don't flow, if a family doesn't put an end to the phoniness and the lies and the pretending, just like Ananias, phony families die. Maybe not instantly like this couple, but they die slowly and painfully. If you did an autopsy on a phony family, you'd find that pride and hidden sin had eaten them up on the inside. For a family to thrive and even survive, its members need to come clean and be honest and join together for the common good. Truly healthy families maintain an atmosphere of humility and truthfulness and trust. What a day it was when the two-faced Ananias lied and God struck him dead. Great fear came upon all. I've heard some Christians say that they wish they lived in the days of the early church where they could have seen firsthand the miracles written in the book of Acts. I'm not so sure. In the first century, when a hypocrite went to church, he either repented or he came home in a body bag. Of course, this is seldom the case today. I, I won't say it can't happen or it won't happen, but it often doesn't. With the event that took place in Acts chapter 5, God was making a point, more so than establishing a pattern. In the baby church's formative years, while standards for the church, the church life and worship were still forming, God took serious this issue of people playing at religion. He didn't want posers, folks who claimed to be more than they were, to be the norm in the church. Thus, here in Acts chapter 5, God takes severe measures. Imagine a church today that had regular baptisms, quarterly communion, and weekly executions. I'm not sure you'd want to go. It's obvious now that God's intention was not to deal with all hypocrites that way, the way he dealt with Ananias, and we should be glad. If he used the same standard today, we'd start to sing, I surrender all. And people would start dropping like hotcakes all over the congregation. We'd have to call Wages Funeral Home to send over a fleet of hearses just to haul off all the corpses. In Acts chapter 5, God was making a point. And it only took one exemplary case to show his disdain for hypocrisy. Notice Peter sees straight through Ananias. When the man lies, Peter asks him, why has Satan filled your heart? 
He recognized Ananias' two-faced devotion. His duplicity was an attack of the devil on the church. Satan was trying to defile the church with hypocrisy. And if God hadn't stamped it out early on, it would have ruined for all time his growing and blossoming church. But the story isn't over. The scariest part's yet to come. You see, phony families, they don't start out phony. The hypocrisy and the duplicity gets tolerated and it builds up over time. Key factors enable and add to the phoniness. Verse six tells us, and the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. You see, in ancient times and in hot and humid places, corpses were disposed of quickly. No need to risk stench or disease. They didn't even first notify the next of kin. And that's why Ananias' bride, Sapphira, was oblivious to what had happened to her husband. She didn't even know yet. Apparently, she'd gone to the shopping mall. She was late for church for three hours. Verse 7 tells us that it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Here she comes. She's strolling into church, ready to join in the praise. Now, go back to verse 2, and you'll get a crucial detail that helps you know what's going on in Sapphira's mind. We're told, he kept back part of the proceeds. That's Ananias. He kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. Sapphira knew about the scam. She was privy to her husband's hypocrisy. And the wording used here is very deliberate. While her man works his con, Sapphira isn't just there. She is aware. She may not have plotted it with him. She may not have known about it from the start. But by this point, Sapphira was very, very aware and thought her complicity in the scheme could help him get away with it unscathed. I'm sure Sapphira would have told you that she was just loving her husband. But by not speaking up, by not forcing correction, she signed both his death certificate and hers. Martin Luther King once said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Let me say that again. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Sapphira died that day, as did Ananias. They'll be buried side by side, but deep inside, she started to die when she chose to help her husband carry out his ruse and not stand up for what was right before God. If she had really loved her husband, she would have refused to be silent about his sinful behavior and would have done what she could to get him some help. There is a modern word. It comes to us, or it comes into usage through Alcoholics Anonymous and through the addiction recovery community. It's the term codependency. The idea is that the person who lives with an addict a spouse or a child or a parent or even a friend may act in ways that actually support and perpetuate the person's addiction in an effort to deserve a degree of normalcy for themselves and for their family. They learn ways of just sort of coping with the troubled person and with their sin. But the attitude often facilitates more bad behavior from the addict. They lie for the person so he doesn't have to admit what's going on. They cover up what he does. 
They try to spare the family or the person an embarrassment. They're all, they offer excuses. Oh, they're good at making excuses. They like to show pity instead of insisting on responsibility. At times, they even stick their head in the sand and pretend that it'll all go away on its own. They embrace the illusion, and it is an illusion. They fall victim to the very false feeling that if I'm not dealing with it, then it must not be happening. But it is. This not only occurs with spouses, but parents are also guilty. They think it can never happen to their kid to preserve the family's image. They bury their head in the sand. Or they fear the child's rejection if they call him on the carpet, so they tiptoe around his rebellion. Here's a cartoon I ran across this week. The parents are feverishly working on the son's homework when the dad says, son, we're stuck. Do you mind helping us with your homework? They're coddling the kid. Like Sapphira, they're scared to confront the real issue. How many parents have failed their adult children by bailing them out of trouble over and over again? I've seen parents make excuses for a child's poor behavior, even into adulthood. Parents shelter their kids without realizing the crippling effect it causes. When a young person never has to face up to the consequences of their foolishness, they never learn discipline and responsibility. Make someone's life easy at every turn, and you contribute to their delinquency. Apparently, Savira would rather have lied to God than confront her husband. She didn't want to make waves. She didn't want to cause any friction in her home. This was a sick family. Realize it might be true that a passive, non-confrontational approach will make life easier for you in the short run. But it's not going to help the person in trouble. And it's certainly not going to help you in the long run. Oh, it's easier to cover up and make excuses and even lower your expectations. But God wants you to deal with the real issue. Here's another term for Sapphira. She was a classic enabler. Rather than confront her husband in love and try to get him some help, at least go to Peter and the elders of the church with your concerns, Sapphira. No, she chose to stay quiet in aid in Ananias' hypocrisy. This made her complicit. Sapphira chose to be part of the problem instead of part of the solution. And this is what helps make a phony family. Keep reading, verse 8. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Peter knows the answer to the question. He's just giving Sapphira a chance to come clean. Sadly, though, she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. The couple get buried in adjacent plots. We're not told why Sapphira sold out the truth to support Ananias' scheme. We're left to speculate. Maybe her low self-esteem wanted to impress him. 
maybe. She did want to tell somebody, but Ananias physically threatened her. That sometimes happens. Maybe this wasn't the first time that he had played the hypocrite and she thought he might get away with it again. Maybe she enjoyed the lifestyle and the prestige that his money provided. Her pride propped up his hypocrisy. Or maybe she went along with the scheme because she had designs on the money that he had held back from God. Oh, she wanted that money. She already had plans for it. Or it could be that Sapphira had a warped sense of devotion and wanted to stand by her man no matter what. And I understand the thought process. The scripture teaches us that a wife should submit to her husband, even in the midst of his mistakes. You remember the Bible commends Sarah for submitting to Abraham when he lied about her being his sister. It was down in Egypt. Abraham denied his marriage because he feared for his life. He allowed Pharaoh to add Sarah to his harem. To save his own skin, Abraham threw his wife under the bus. He was pathetic. And it was a submissive Sarah who trusted God to protect her virtue and be greater than even her husband's blunder. But evidently, there is a fine line between submission to a weak husband and complicity in an evil scheme. Sarah trusted God in the face of Abraham's fear, but Sapphira was not as noble. She stepped over her own conscience and threw her integrity away to pursue her own agenda, whatever it was choices Sarah didn't make. Sapphira engaged in her own hypocrisy. There wasn't a trace of faith in any of her actions. In fact, notice how Peter describes her sin. In verse 9, he says, Sapphira had agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord. She had challenged God's omniscience, God's character, The fact that she lied to God and thought that she could get away with it was a slap in the face to the Holy Spirit. You know, I read of a restaurant in New York City that has built a business on hypocrisy. Husbands bring their wives, boyfriends bring their girlfriends to this restaurant. The couples get seated and they get handed a menu. But what the girl doesn't know is that the prices in her menu are triple of the prices that are in the man's menu. So when he leans in and tells his girl, baby, just order whatever you want. It's a trick. He's trying to impress her, but it's a trick. And I'll bet the scheme has backfired a time or two. I would imagine when most women learn the news that they've been conned, that their man's generosity was phony, not real, that the relationship can get pretty scary. And that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They attempt to con God, but their plan backfires. Hypocrisy always backfires. Nobody pulls the wool over God's eyes. Don't be foolish. The story closes as it should. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. After this episode, the church was on its best behavior. Everyone learned that honesty is always the best policy. I want to close this morning by telling you what Sapphira should have done. When Sapphira caught wind of Ananias' scheme to defraud God and to play the poser, she should have realized that her household was sick. 
that her husband had been infected with sin, that he had a fever. And guys, fevers need to be treated. You can't afford to wait on a fever to see if the person infected gets better on their own. A passive approach only gives the fever an opportunity to grow. A person with a fever needs a physician. Perhaps this is why Peter was so quick to call Sapphira on the carpet. For him, this all hit too close to home. For remember, he too had been in a similar situation. Back in Luke chapter 4, Peter's mother-in-law had been home with an actual fever. The original language calls it a mega fever. And what did Peter do about it? He went to the synagogue to get some help to recruit Jesus. He brought Jesus home from church. But here, the country club couple, they went to church to show off how healthy they appeared to be. They had no intention of being honest and getting help. They were about keeping up their image, even to the point of allowing the fever to rage on. Sadly, their pride had too much to hide. They weren't, a go they weren't going to bring Jesus home. They weren't going to bring Jesus anywhere near their family. They didn't want him to know what was going on in their family. And realize this is why phony families die. This is how a family that can attend this church every week can suddenly break up. You ask, what happened? It was because they were coming to church all along to be seen rather than to see Jesus. They're not going to let Jesus or, or let the church know about their problems. They don't want to bring home help and healing. They want to go to show off how good they look. In contrast, Peter had been honest. His family had a fever and he brought Jesus home trusting in his cure. Luke writes, Jesus rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she arose and served them. Jesus will rebuke any kind of fever. He has a cure. See, the honest family was sick, but they brought Jesus home, got healed, and began to serve. Whereas this phony family bragged about their service, yet they were sick and they died. Peter's family was sick. Ananias' family was sick. I hope you realize all families are sick to some degree or another. At least they run a low-grade fever. That's even true of your family and my family. But one family was honest and got healed, whereas the other family played the hypocrite and died. Which family do you want to be? There are no perfect people and there are no perfect families, but neither should there ever be a phony family. Jesus comes. Healing comes to families that are honest with their problems and seek the Lord for his help. We all belong to families that are under construction. And the more honest we are about it, the sooner and the better that God can complete what he's building in us. And so today, on Father's Day, I appeal, first of all, to us men to take the initiative. Guys, let's be honest before God and let's begin with our own shortcomings. Let's not live with a fever in our families. Let's go to Jesus. 
and get the help that we need.